this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. Next up, you're going to hear from Courtney Ream, who left Goldman Sachs in 2007 to start Vive Vodka. He built it up over that 10-year period to more than $10 million in annual sales, and he sold it for a cool seven times top-line revenue. In fact, over seven times top-line revenue. And in this episode, he talks a lot about raising the money for Vive, which I found fascinating, uh, the importance of having connections and deep-pocketed connections in, in that process, and how not to get diluted in the process of ra- raising money. Listen for the section where he's describing how at M13, his investment firm, they think about investing in certain companies. I loved when he, when he talked about what he calls so what sales and the danger of growing your company and doing too many things. Great little uh, pieces of insight there from Reem. He talks about the sale of Vive and how he actually got six different businesses that he thought might be willing to buy his business, how he winnowed that down to a group of three and ultimately chose one. He talks a little bit about some of the dirty tricks that venture capitalists play. He talks about cram downs, um, preferences and ratchets. He gives little definitions of all this. So lots of tidbits and good stuff in here from Courtney Ream. Courtney Ream, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to hear about this. Now, I must confess, I do like vodka. I've never tried Vive. Isn't that terrible? That is terrible, but I'm going to forgive you because we only sell in uh, the U.S. and we never quite got that deal done with the Canadian uh, PLCB or whatever they're called. Yeah, the mafia up here in Canada. Right, sure. and they really are the mafia. They wanted me to sell to them at a loss. So as you can imagine, that was a tough tough deal to swallow. <laughs> For an entrepreneur, that's a, that's a no-go. Well, listen, I, uh, I, I'm looking forward to hearing about it. So tell me about V. This was, a, this was kind of a vodka with a bit of a twist. Maybe tell me about your idea. Yeah, it was, it was kind of the idea that uh, you know, people are always going to drink, especially here stateside. Things like prohibition didn't work. So if you start from the assumption people are going to always drink, let's try to have them drink better or give them a better option. Um, my brother and I are pretty health-conscious guys, and we were always really shocked by seeing friends of ours who were incredibly healthy in every as- uh, aspect of their life, yet, like like a lot of people, myself included, we wanted to enjoy uh, going out and having some drinks, but then you drink certain unnamed alcohols that are really practically carcinogenic. So we felt like if we created something that was unique as a product, both in the bottle and as a company, it might have a shot. So that was kind of being the first organic product. Um, we were infused with a bunch of ingredients like the acai berry from Brazil when no one knew what that was. We had prickly pear in there, which is a 
natural hangover remedy. Of course, um, disclaimer, you can get hungover from anything if you drink enough of it, but all things equal, it'll definitely make you less hungover if you drink what you usually drink. And then as a company, uh, we did a ton of things around sustainability. We had the first distillery powered by renewable wind energy, um, gave uh, you know a dollar from every bottle we sold, which was a huge percentage of our quote-unquote profits, um, back to the Brazilian rainforest and different local environmental causes. So um, felt like it was something different and people would be uh, re- would respond well to it. How much of the difference was kind of vaporware? I mean, the prickly pear, the ingredients. I mean, is this real, like difference or is this more marketing difference no it's 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 real difference for sure i mean uh you're correct in saying that at the end of the day alcohol is largely water i mean there's a ton of water in there so but but also just having better quality water in there you'd be shocked the lack of quality water that's in a lot of things like vodka or other white spirits um alcohol or whatever whatever you use to distill a grain or something like that and then it comes down to the other ingredients i, I don't think we ever claim that you know, having a, a Vive cocktail is the same as having a superfood smoothie. But again, we felt like, you know, it, it was healthy from a bunch of different angles or healthier. It was lower calorie and the ingredients were organic. And, um, you know, they're very actually strict about the organic labeling and alcohol because you can imagine the health claims you have to be very careful and really, really walk the walk. But as I said, if you, if you, we say to people, hey, if you usually had three drinks and that was your limit, have you had three vodkas, have three Vives, and I promise you'll feel better the next day. If you start acting irrationally and have five Vives, then I can almost guarantee, conversely, you'll be more hungover than you usually are, too. So that's that's always the caveat. Got it. And so how did you guys get, I mean, the booze business is notoriously expensive to get into, right? There's, there's There are significant capital outlays. So how did you, how did you kind of raise the money to get going in the first place? Yeah, you are you are right. I often joke that the phrase "takes money to make money" is uh, was invented by someone who started an alcohol brand because uh, there is no scaling. There is very archaic laws, especially um, in the U.S. in terms of how these things are distributed. So uh, you really, you know, it's really guerrilla warfare and hand-to-hand combat, and that just requires sales teams and marketing expenses, and and it's very expensive. So but my brother and I were lucky in that we both were previously. Goldman Sachs investment bankers. So had come into contact with a, with a number of people who had given you the old, hey, if you ever start something, kid, I'd, I'd back you. And luckily, we circled back to them. And so I worked on things like the merger of Procter & Gamble Gillette, was part of the team to help take Under Armour Public, uh, worked with Vitamin Water very early days. So when you're around some founders like that, besides being inspiring, they, they know, um, you know how to be entrepreneurial and they back people. So uh, we, we tended to keep our investors by name fairly private, but it was something like probably 90% of the money we raised, and it was an, an eight-figure amount when it was all said and done, came directly or indirectly kind of through our, our relationships at Goldman Sachs. Fantastic. Um, how, did you, how did you value – because I think you know, people – a lot of people listening will have never raised money before. And the whole idea of raising money is such a, such a black hole. And, and I wonder, how do you go about raising money for an idea? Like, how do you put a value on it? How do you, like, it just seems like such a shot in the dark to figure out, okay, what's, you know, what's this thing worth when it's really nothing more than an idea? How did you guys do it? Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously times have changed and valuations are probably a little bit higher, especially out of the gate. I think there's a bunch of, uh, factors you touched on there. For example, if you're a second-time entrepreneur, 
whether you've been successful or not, but especially if you've been immensely successful, it's a different valuation for just you know drawing some sketches on a piece of paper than it is if you're a first-time entrepreneur and your experience and all that good stuff. Um, you know, it's 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 funny just to touch on what you said. I mean, we, my brother and I, actually just wrote an entrepreneur book, um, and one of our tenets in it is that time is the new money, and it's hard to get your arms around that idea, especially when when you're strapped for money. But, um, you know, there's there's a lot of ways that didn't exist when we did it, like crowdfunding and just general access to people um, that does exist now. And so we really encourage people in our experience that you should always be prioritizing your time over your money because that is the new currency. And a lot of great ideas are about speed to market and then ultimately um, execution. Got it. What kind of proportion of the business did you have to give up in that angel round? Well, we we tried, uh, obviously, you know, uh, as, as someone once told me, and I believe like once you start taking the house's money, you want to keep taking it. But obviously early on is when you can get diluted quite a bit. So we tried to raise the bare minimum every time and then go out for more raises. We were fortunate in that we had investors who, one thing that Uh, in my experience, we see people do a lot is they raise money and they say, Hey, this will last for a year. And then it only lasts for six months and investors are kind of, you know, shrugging or shaking their head. And what, what, what I like to do is raise money based on milestones versus time. And so if I said, Hey, I'm going to raise a million dollars to get my first thousand customers. And if that took a year and three months, or it happened much sooner and took four months, you've set the expectation that when you hit certain milestones, you're going to go raise more money. So what we um, did, and I think this worked out really well, is we laid out a directional roadmap, which ended up being, you know, not totally accurate, but definitely directional, saying to our investors, here's the inflection points where we think we're going to need capital. And we ended up being roughly right so that we said to people, hey, I would like to try to have you invest a million dollars or pick a hypothetical number, but I don't want you to invest that now. I would like you to invest that over the next three years in, in several tranches. So we had a, a we all we also had new money in there, but we also had a big pool of investors that re-upped a couple times as we went because I think they felt like, okay, they laid out the plan, they laid out the vision, this is how much it's gonna take. It was a big number, but it seemed more palatable to kind of deploy it almost the way you would with a venture capital fund or a private equity fund over, you know, a three to five year period and that that's what we did. And is the valuation going up at each as you hit each of those milestones? Is the overall valuation going up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the valuation kind of goes up commensurately. But um, in what we do, I'm a big believer that you know I've been on we've been on both sides of it. Now we've started several companies and been fortunate enough to exit. We also do a lot of advisory board work and, and angel investments. We're in over a hundred companies, so I, I think we can kind of relate to the operating entrepreneur side as well as the investor side. And the one mistake that that I feel like I see people make, if I'm being objective, is that trying to maximize your valuation for that first round or two is, in our experience, a big mistake because I believe you should always reward the people who who backed you first. And whether your valuation is, again, I'm making up numbers, but two million or three million, of course it matters a little bit. But it matters less than when you get to bigger rounds, if you're doing a Series A, Series B, Series C, uh, or and raising bigger amounts, $5 million, $10 million, $15 million. That's when you really want to stretch your valuation because you get the growth. When you try to set the valuation too high, 
on those first rounds, people think it sounds great because you say, oh, my company's worth $7 million now, and that number wasn't thought out. And then you have to go raise money two years later when you've made all this progress, maybe not as much as you thought, but you've made progress, and you have to raise money at $10 million. And all the people that backed you early and took a big risk went, whoa, that's not much appreciation. And so that's, I think, how you kind of turn off your early supporters is when you get too aggressive too early without focusing on bringing in the right people who can unlock value and be good value add investors. Were you ever, uh, did you ever second guess your decision to bring on so much outside money? Were you, I mean, were you ever tempted uh, to grow more slowly and, and stay within the, basically the cash flow the business could, could generate? Well, Vive, uh, our first venture was a unique example in that there was almost no way we were ever going to be profitable, but that wasn't the game. It was, you know, um, build the top, prioritize the top line over the bottom line, meaning really go for the growth because the exit multiples, you know, usually range from five to 10 times sales. I mean, even a little bit higher to give people out there just a, just a directional um, data point, something like Grey Goose as a very mature brand in 2003 sold for 11 and a half times sales and 23 times free cash flow, which added up to a company you know, 2.2 billion. And that was one of those data points where you think it's crazy, but there's other um, deals like that that have happened. So we went into this going, okay, we can probably get something like seven to 10 times sales, which we did. And um, you just have to balance that top line growth because that's what the strategics want to see with not running out of money. Now, other ventures we've been a part of, to your point, uh, have been much more about kind of running it to break even while we grow the top line and being more thoughtful because we also started Vive pre-2008. I think now, um, certainly when we look at the investment side, it's much more about looking at the path to profitability or at least staying within shouting distance to break even so that should we have another correction or something happens, you don't have to fire sale it. You can just change the direction of your of your sailboat a little bit. Got it. It sounds like you guys started Vive to sell it. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that in, in, in our experience now, having seen over a uh, uh, hundred businesses, one of the biggest things when people ask me what what they should do when they're starting out. It's, it's always start with, with the exit goal in mind. And I know that's hard because not everyone wants to sell their business. I've had businesses that I started and didn't want to sell. I've had ones like Vive where I, I, you know, had the, had the blinders on right from the beginning with every decision in mind, knowing I wanted to sell. And as I told one of our companies that we work with, um, really closely, a, uh, it's like an organic slim gym called chomps. I told them this recently, we have to make sure we align that you want to sell this. And we have to make every decision with that in mind. It doesn't mean when the day of reckoning comes, you actually have to sell it, but you have to have that mindset to at least put yourself in position or put yourself in danger of being purchased. I'm saying that facetiously in a good way and make those decisions. And it doesn't mean you have to, if the price isn't right, or if we're really cash flowing, but I think it's really important to line that up early and most people don't think about it early enough. What triggered the conversation with the Slim Jim guy about you've got to run this thing like you're going to sell it? I mean, I guess my, the, 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 the basis of my question is how would you approach decisions differently if the goal was to sell it versus the goal was to just build a lifestyle business? Right. Um, great question. And so I guess pick something like um, marketing spend. It, it, every industry is different, but going back to things that we've done a lot of like beverage, most fast growing beverage companies are sold as a revenue 
multiples. So you're incentivized to push marketing, reinvest, drive the top line because nobody's buying you off EBITDA unless you, you know, make some jump and get past 100 million in sales relatively quickly. And even then, it can actually end up worse for you because once you have too much EBITDA, then they're going to value on that instead of sales. If you're a business that's a cash flow business versus a high growth one, I would be much more measured um, about the marketing spend because it's spitting off great cash. And, you know, we have some businesses that I don't think are ever saleable, but they spit off seven figures of, of free cash flow a year. And so I'm very happy with, let's even call it flat growth or very little growth because the cash flow is so good. So that's a good example of the dichotomy between high growth versus longevity and almost like an annuity of the cash flow. What would be an example of one of those companies in your portfolio that has seven figure but that you could never sell? Like what makes it unsellable? Well, so uh, we have a little all natural liquid sleep shot, like picture a five hour energy looking bottle, but it's an all natural liquid sleep drink in there. You take it 30 minutes before bed. It's called Rebloom. And um, we only sell the brand online. And without going to all the specific numbers, it does seven, does low seven figures of revenue, but my net income margin on it is almost, uh, well, about 40% is my net income margin. And I only have a couple people who work on it part-time. I only sell it direct to consumer online. And so it's very profitable kind of per hour spent. And I don't believe that anyone's going to necessarily buy. It's literally one, well, now about to be two SKUs. So I don't think this is a $100 million business, but I believe if I can take it from low seven figures, a million, two million in revenue to five or 10 million in revenue, um, you know, that cash flow is very meaningful amount. And I think that's, that's very doable. But my goal for that one is not necessarily to ever sell it because if I put myself in the strategic shoes, I'm not sure they would. Now, if someone could come along and do it. That would be great. But I'm not planning on that. I'm more just harvesting the cash flow and managing the churn and the burn since it's very profitable. I want to go back to this idea of building to sell because I wrote a book called Built to Sell, and and I found that that a lot of people were kind of squeamish about it, right? So it sounded really like money grubbing, or you know, like built to flip became you know a four letter word, right? In um, in, in some circles, that that it was just uh, you know, uh, to money grubbing is the is the best way I can describe it. Um, and, and, I, and I had to go through all the machinations to describe, well, that's not what I mean. It's, you know, you build still, and, and everybody pushes back and said, no, didn't you read Jim Collins' book? It's all about building to last. You've got a values and culture. And that, that's, what's important about building a company. And I'm like, no, you don't have to have those two things don't have to be separate, but I fight that fight all the time. So for you, how do you reconcile it or how do you defend it when people say, oh, you must be such money grubbing sleazeballs. All you care about is building to sell. Like, do you get that reaction? I do, but you know, I do, but I also don't because I feel like, to your point, and, and you know better than I do, I actually think most people want to sell. It just depends what sell means. Does sell mean do it a year from now, five years from now, or 20 years from now? Most people want to, and most successful companies at some point have a chance to sell. So I, I, I tend to push people when they say they don't want to sell, and it's it's like certain political issues. They say one thing and do another. I find that when I really push most people and it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation, they're in a safe space, they admit they want to sell. They don't know when or they don't want to know, they don't know how, but that's what they say. Um, but again, I just emphasize it doesn't mean you have to. It just means you want to have the, uh, the option. And, and part of what makes us excited and part of why we do what we do at M13 is we think this is a unique inflection point in the world where 
brands are being started. You know, the, the barriers to entry are down for starting brands. There's a lot of ways to get capital. So starting a brand is kind of democratized, but doing it well uh, and the competition out there is the trick. And so I believe way more brands are getting started, way more will fail, but the ones that work, it's just hard to say what will be around 25 and 50 years from now when you look at things like, you know, what's, what's in the, the Russell 2000 or some of these, what's, what's in the, um, the Dow Jones now versus what was in it 25 years ago and 25 years before that. Even among these big companies, there's a lot of changes. So I think, although I definitely believe in longevity, I also think there's something to be said for being smart with your product in the here and now because very few things are built to last for a half century or more. What's your brother like? What's my brother like? Similar to me, he's very uh, type A, fast talking. Um, we have an interesting partnership because I think if I was, it's the only partner I've truly known in the in the business sense. We both, um, you know, grew up together, played sports together. Literally, both went to um, Columbia and Harvard. Went to the same schools. We both worked at Goldman Sachs and have now worked. Yeah, so like inseparable. We're inseparable. Like We're two years apart, but we've <laughs> kind of followed each other. But. It's interesting because I think most people would say, okay, if you're going to start a business, you want to find someone with complementary skill sets, left brain, right brain, or the technical person versus the salesy person. We're more, although we're different, we're more overlapping where it's a little bit of divide and conquer, but try to be, you know, like 80-20 rule. Like I could kind of hop in on anything he's working on on short notice if it's scheduling or I'm in a certain city and vice versa. So although we, we are very mindful of not being duplicative, we actually are able to kind of hop in for each other and take over different projects or deals, and it works uh, pretty seamlessly. So that's our advantage, despite the fact that we're not polar opposite complementary partners. It's funny. I've got two sons, and they're they're two years apart, and I could never imagine them running a business together. <laughs> just like, yeah. It's just yeah, unbelievable. Well, Cats and dogs. Yeah, we've, we've been lucky. It's not always easy, but we've definitely been lucky. My um, The joke uh, from my uh, that my dad used to say was he used to say, ah, I have two sons that work at Goldman Sachs. And then when we left to be entrepreneurs, people would ask, you, be like, I have two sons. And <laughs> thankfully over time, he ended up, you know, uh, some of our brands got out there and he was, he was proud of us, but it was a little, little bit of a risk and a jump leaving a, a secure job. Yeah. I have two sons that went from Goldman Sachs to selling booze. Right. <laughs> Which is why he would just say, I have two sons. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because I think if, if you canvassed, uh, college campuses around America, the idea of landing a job at Goldman Sachs must be, you know, for a lot of people, that's a dream job they would aspire to for a lifetime. I mean, how did you walk away from that? Yeah, it's, it, it's in some ways it wasn't easy. In other ways, it was really easy, believe it or not, because I, I always wanted to be entrepreneurial, but I don't know. I'm, I'm late thirties. I don't feel like the word entrepreneur truly existed or I didn't know anyone who was an entrepreneur in my teens and even really through college. So I like had this feeling that I kind of wanted to do my own thing, but I don't even think I knew how to articulate or go about it. And so I thought about doing something entrepreneurial right after college. And as my dad once told me very, very nicely and lovingly, well, just to take quick inventory, you have no real contacts, no real money, and no real skill set to speak of. People have done it with less, but that's what you're up against. And as a 22-year-old, yeah, that kind of sunk in. And, and don't get me wrong, it's changed because I meet 22, 23-year-olds now who have much more than, than I had at that point. So it's, it's different. And obviously, we've seen big companies like Snap get created by people of that age. But 
um, it was just a, just a different time. So, uh, you know, for me, I guess what I'm saying is those feelings were always kind of dormant, but there, I just didn't know they were there. So I was, I, we, we did these little polls when I first started at Goldman and it was like most likely to quit the first two weeks. And I think I won that. So the <laughs> fact that I stayed, you know, for a number of years after that, I was pretty proud of it because of my analyst class of a hundred and something people, I was probably one of the last 10 or 15 standing. So I, oh, I also formed my own expectations a little, time, a little bit. <laughs> by a long while. So tell me about the exit of Veep. So you're you're growing fast. You're investing a truckload in, in sales and marketing. What was the trigger that made you think, okay, now's the time? Um, to to sell, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think for us it was understanding that this is a business that whatever words uh, people are used to hearing, oh, this scales or this backwards or forwards integrates and all that good stuff. Alcohol is a funny one in that it really does none of those. It's kind of just there. And we knew who our buyers were and we looked and we were very proud that we built something um, from the ground to a certain point. You can't see my hands, but it's like 80% of the way there. But we knew that there was a ceiling on it and we were approaching that ceiling. So it's the balancing act of selling it while there's still some runway. Um, but not holding on too long. And so we were very cognizant of that, partly because of our burn rate and partly because we felt like the person who buy us, it's not exactly about every case or every last dollar at this point. It was about proof of concept, the proposition, where it fits in their portfolio. And, and as I alluded to before, one of the things that I think most people underestimate when you get sold to a big company like we did, a, a multi-billion dollar company is they're so into runway, right? As important as where it is, is where it isn't because they look at that and think, wow, look what we could do with it and plug it into our model. And so that was making sure we conveyed that sort of stuff was as, as or more important than the actual sales to date. When you talk about runway, just to be clear, you're talking about there's still more sales to go capture in the market. Right. Like, for example, we, we sold Viva in all 50 states, but at the end of the day, we really focused on no more than 10 states. We were in other states because we were in national accounts like Disney or airlines like Virgin America or hotel chains like Marriott. But really, we, we had a credible story to say, we're only focused on these 10 states. The other ones are window dressing. Look what you can do in the other 40 states. And oh, by the way, beyond that, our neighbors to the north in Canada or to the south in Mexico, we've done nothing there, much less rest of the world. And this proposition will resonate there too. So you have the whole rest of the world to work with as well. So t painting that picture was important. You said that you had uh, a sense of, of who your buyer was going to be. Did you mean to say singular, like you, you knew there was just one buyer out there, or did you mean generically there were a lot of buyers and you knew, you knew who they were? No, I, I meant that pluralistically, but it's a, it's a good point. Plural, but very finite plural. I would say, you know, there's probably a dozen people that we thought were buyers almost half of those get eliminated just based on, you know, where they're at, right? If, if Diageo was a potential buyer, which they were, but they were having their own issues and their stock price was slumping, no one's going to get, you know, fussed about buying V for, you know, X millions when they're potentially losing billions on their market cap. It's just not generally how these things go. So some of those buyers were eliminated due to macro things or conflicts. And at the end of the day, we probably had a a pretty focused list of about a half dozen companies that we actually, you know, we were strategic about it. But one thing we talk about in our, our new book here is really kind of keeping some mystery and being coy, but really trying to pre-court the buyers. Because I think 
too many times people say, well, no one broke down my door, so no one must want it. But that's, as you know, not really how it goes now with few exceptions. And it doesn't mean they don't want it. They just kind of have to be fed the breadcrumbs, if you will. How did you pre-court them? Well, I, I love that term, by the way, pre-courting. Are you drinking vodka right now? I just heard the glass. In the, in the oh, glass. you heard a glass. Sorry. Yes. It was I did. Are you having a Vive, a double Vive? And so right. It's, sorry. You <laughs> snuck me. I always have to have just one shot of Vive in the middle of the day with my vitamins. Yeah. So now that yeah. I'm reduced, um, yes, uh, <laughs> apologies for that. But yes. <laughs> um, so we say pre-court the buyers because it's not showing up and saying, hey, we're for sale. Do you want to buy it? It's leading them to breadcrumbs because, you know, it was, it was, it was just, establishing relationships, acting like you know all this very well, but it's the old, um, you want someone to buy your company, not go out and try to get sold. And so it's just about having organic conversations, finding reasons to build the relationships. And then honestly, part of it's just getting out and telling your story because we found, and I've continued to find this with other businesses since Vive, the perceptions of a lot of times brands, especially when they're smaller up and coming, Certainly, there's ones that are right and wrong. And listen, there was perceptions I heard about Vive and other companies we've had that were too far positive that were very wrong. But perceptions can definitely be out there. And so it's important to try to control the message and make sure you control the perceptions to the best of your ability. And so if it's even finding an excuse to go chat with someone who's a strategic buyer and you don't have a meeting, but let's just say you have a casual drink at an industry trade show, it's about just dropping those breadcrumbs of things that you think might be hot buttons for them or misconceptions they might have about you and just subtly um, bringing those into the fold. I think we found that made a, a big difference in getting people's interest. Interesting. Love it. Love it. So you shortened the list from, from a dozen obvious guys down to six who you thought had the, the capacity to buy and 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 the willingness and, and the time was right and you're, you're laying in the bread, bread comes. Love it. Um, and can what, I, what next? One, one thing that I think is important is that, mm -hmm. you know, you probably see this all the time too, where we always say, um, you know, success doesn't equal a successful exit. So it's very much about strategic sales or strategic, whatever your, your, your play is with your company, because we see so many businesses now that get to, a big number, you know, 10 million to 25. I saw a business the other day that was at 25 million and he kind of acted dumbfounded that no one wanted to buy him. And I said, with all due respect, I don't see, see why someone would because it's great you've gotten to 25 million, but, it, but I, in my view of the industry he was in, it was 25 million of very unstrategic so what sales. And I didn't understand how someone would view it and go, oh, I, I need to have that based on the sales he had accumulated. And you know, the reality is, other than the few exceptions we all read about in the press, most of these acquisitions tend to be what I'll call nice-to-haves, not need-to-haves. And if I'm being honest, Vive and, and some of our other brands that we've been involved with are nice-to-haves, not need-to-haves. And if it's a need-to-have, that's when they break down your door. If it's a nice-to-have but not a need-to-have, that's where I think you really need to feed the breadcrumbs, um, you know, and pre-court pre people. What did you mean by, I love this example, but I'd love to know more about this $25 million business who's got a hodgepodge of sales. When you say, so what sales, what, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, you know, one thing we talk about in our new book is, is, you know, do what you do best and outsource the rest. Or we say things like you really have to ruthlessly take advantage of your unfair advantages. And so most startup businesses, I believe, are, are founded on one or two key insights. And this was a retail company. And the problem I had with it is, you know, we're involved with a smoothie company. 
um, that has gone from zero zero dollars in sales two years ago to forty million in two years. But the the best part of it is they're only sold direct to consumer online. There is no um, retail sales. So a buyer could very easily look at that and go, oh my gosh, if I put this into grocery, I do this and I do this. It's not hard to pencil out what those numbers look like. But when you've gotten to this, this was a retail apparel brand. They had sold a little bit through some stores, but it wasn't great sell through. They had opened a couple of their own stores, which was not bad, but not super compelling. They had done some direct to consumer. They were still not profitable at 25 million. And they just kind of got in this hodgepodge where, you know, I think it, this market, the world we live in now is so much about finding your tribe and your niche and your, your consumer. And this brand had sold to so many different consumers that they had it'd been death by a thousand cuts. So although the big number rolled up, it wasn't like we could say to that someone, hey, if you're looking to find 45 to 50-year-old moms who wear a size whatever and like this style, this is your brand. We had to say, oh, it like, appeals to everyone. And by appealing to everyone, it appealed to no one. And thus why they had no, no interest. Yeah, we, we talk about the idea that the most valuable companies sell just a few things to a lot of people, and the least valuable companies sell lots of things to a few people. Right. Similar idea, I mean. but yeah. Yeah. It's always about, you know, ge geographic. If, if you're doing a business geographically these days, it's always, in our experience, we try to say, hey, let's go, let's go deep in before we broaden. Let's, let's nail it in a couple cities rather than try and go everywhere. If it's, if it's channel, let's make sure we figure out direct to consumer before we do a bunch of retailer or vice versa. But too many people kind of sprinkle it out there too much and then it doesn't tell the right story. So what kind of sales are you doing when you're actually in the process of going to market? I mean, what's your annual revenue or kind of some proxy for size at this point? Yeah, um, you know, it, it's, it was in the low, low eight figures in U.S. dollars. So, um, you know, give or take $10 million. Um, the way spirit sales are calculated is very different than um, certain other categories. So that's why the multiples played tend to be, tended to be in that, you know, seven to 10 times sales range because, um, it, getting to 10 million in spirits is very different uh, in our experience than getting to 10 million in a non-alcoholic beverage or, or even a snack. It's probably more like getting to about 25, which is why people paid up for it. Got it. Got it. So you've got these six companies. You're laying out the breadcrumbs. Did you, did you hire a, an investment banker to take the company to market? Did you fall into one company's hands pretty quickly? Like, How did that all go? You know, that's an interesting story. We are, as I said, we're reformed Goldman Sachs bankers. Not that I claim that we were the best bankers when we did it, or we, we left probably before we were too senior. But we at one point had some inbound interest a couple of years before we sold, engaged a banker. It didn't work out. And, you know, we learned some stuff from it and ultimately realized that, per my other comments, if we were going to sell this business, we had to get someone to want to buy us. And the only way someone was going to have the passion, tell the story and feed the right message is if we did it ourselves. So the second go around when we actually got, got bought, we had just, I just made it my business for, you know, 12 months to kind of get around 12 to 18 months to get around and chat with some of these people I thought were potential acquirers so that it was a personalized call. It was a reach out. It was something organic versus, Hey, bankers calling you, we're running a process you have until next week to get your bid in because we did it once and it didn't really work truthfully. And I don't think we would have had much better results the second time. Whereas when we did it ourselves, we were able to kind of have multiple options and, and offers and create a little bit of tension, but nothing that, um, you know, you would try and do if you're a banker for a larger company. 
Why didn't it work the first time? It didn't work the first. It didn't work the first time. I think uh, for several reasons. One, I don't think we had unreasonable valuation expectations, but it was at the high end of of what people wanted. Secondly, the minute uh, and listen, the banker we worked with was great, great guy and very well known guy in the industry. But I think he tried to kind of make it a process where it just needed to be higher touch because you know these companies are usually family owned, generational. Southern gentleman, if I was painting the picture, and you're not going to, again, unless they're breaking down the door, you're not going to force them to do something on someone else's timeline. And we just kind of lost that personal touch. And then I think the last thing was, it was important learning because people had some misconceptions that that ultimately kind of killed the momentum. And true or not, they were enough that it slowed things down or it delayed things. And ultimately, that just made it like herding cats and, and wasn't the right time. What were the misconceptions? Uh, let's see, there'd be misconceptions about how much we discounted our product, which was next to nothing because everyone does, how much we had spent on marketing, um, what markets were our strongest, who our consumer was, things like that. Got it. Got it. So you're, you're having these conversations, you're doing it all yourself. I mean, how did those, how did you approach those conversations? Because I think a lot of people listening would be saying, you know, I, I would love to enter into a conversation with a potential buyer, but I just don't know how to start the conversation. Like, do I send the email saying, hey, Bob, do you want to buy our company? I mean, what, what, how do you, what does this email say and the, the, to the CEO of a, of a, of a billion-dollar company that, that with, the, with the intent that you want to have a strategic conversation with them? Yeah, obviously, every experience is different. In, in ours, and every industry is different. In ours, it doesn't... I don't think I would ever send that email because you just kind of put everyone on notice and you made it pretty clear what you want. Some some cases in some industries, I do think that's the way to go. Just be very direct. We tended to go the way again because we said we started probably two years before we wanted to sell, saying, okay, we want to sell. We have some time. A gun's not to our head, but we need to move with urgency. What do we do? And so it was more like emailing, hey, Bob, this is Courtney Ream, this, you know, this, the founder of Vive Spirits hear your name a lot. I'm guessing you're aware of Vive. I know we'll both be at X event next week. Just thought it'd be nice to like, you know, break the ice and kind of tell you a little bit about Vive or just something very low key. And if they have no interest, that tells you something. But I would say 80% of the people that I took that approach with were like, yeah, for sure. I know about Vive for good things. Let's grab a drink. Let's grab a chat. Let's grab a coffee for a few minutes. And that way, you know, when they ask are you for sale, no, no, not for sale. Just thought it would be good. You know, just trying to meet people in the industry. I haven't been doing this that long or however you phrase it. And none of it was untrue. It was just much more of a, of a slow play. Did you get anybody saying, are you guys for sale? Um, yeah, one or two people, but it was more, but when I started doing it, I don't think people were chomping at the bit so much as once we proved a few things out, they were more eager. And, um, yeah, people would say, is your goal to sell it? And depending on who I was talking to, I would never say no. I would say exactly what I've said here, which is that, uh, you know, right now we're focused on building the brand. But at some point down the road, I think, you know, we're, we're interested in partnering with a bigger strategic to get this brand to the next level. And what that looks like, I don't know, or something to that effect. Got it. Got it. So who was the first, like, what happened next? I mean, assumingly you, you got a, a formal offer, a letter of intent from somebody. How many of the six gave you an offer and how did that look? 
Uh, so we ended up, again, because we ran it ourselves, formal offers a relative term. But, yeah, we had three or four people who said, hey, I could see this kind of deal working. And it was, you know, phone calls, emails back and forth. We didn't ask for, like, indicative letters of interest or non-binding offers or things like that. We just kind of slow played into them because we, what we said to everyone, which was the truth, was, oh, you know, we've, we have someone else interested, but we want to do the right thing by the brand here, and we're really interested in talking to you for these reasons. So it's not an open-ended invite. We, you know, we'd like to kind of move with um, some, some speed if there's interest, and if there's not, no worries. But we did it in like a very non-ultimatum sort of way, and so that worked well. We had about four people that, that I think – gave us some kind of offer, as I recall, because it's been a few years now. One one dropped out relatively early, and then another kind of made an offer that as we dug into it wasn't that appealing. And at the end of the day, we had two pretty good offers to, uh, to choose from, which is how I think it goes a lot of the time. What made the one offer unappealing? Uh, that they One was that they wanted us to stay on, and we wanted to focus on other things. And the second thing is that they... Um, we're kind of trying to haircut, you know, they gave you a, let's just say they said, oh, we're willing to offer a hundred million for it. And then they kept kind of chipping away and haircutting and haircutting and haircutting. And that's just not how we generally do business. It's that if you have some questions and want to talk about adjusting the valuation, that's fine. But I think it's kind of one of the dirtier tricks some people do where they lead with a top line number, but then keep haircutting it where it's like, you knew you were going to get to 70 or 80 from a hundred. You should really be more transparent about it. it. Just doesn't leave a good taste because sometimes you can do that purposely, knowing that it will remove other buyers just from a timing point of view. So you thought they were retrading on purpose? Um, yeah, I can't say if they, if I do for sure, but I think th their way of doing it definitely would leave that open to the imagination. Yeah, yeah. So you got these two offers. How did you distinguish between the two? I mean, was it just the better price one, or were there other material deal terms in one that made it more favorable, or what? what what made you tip the balance to the one? Yeah, the what made me tip the balance ultimately was that uh, we actually ended up taking a little less money up front and putting some in the cum, uh, meaning we actually opted for some earnout over time because we felt like if they do what they thought, uh, what we felt they could do with the brand, we'd rather bet on the back end. And uh, the other person wasn't willing to give us any stake in it over the next few years, and so. We wanted to continue to bet on, I guess, not ourselves anymore, but on the on the brand. What proportion of the total deal was at risk, or on the come, as you said? Yeah, uh, for various reasons, it's hard to calculate exactly, but it was, you know, a quarter, a third of it, meaningful amount. Uh, yeah, yeah. And how how were you? What made you confident that they were going to fulfill their obligations? I just did this interview the other day with this woman, Cindy Whitehead, amazing interview. Uh, she, she invented this, the, the female Viagra. She sells yeah. it. And, and the deal was she sold it for a billion dollars and, 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 and a percentage of future sales. And the company, Valiant, um, said, yeah, yeah, we'll sign up for that. And she made them sign up for a marketing plan and a commitment to invest dollars. Well, Valiant went, as you, as you know, pear-shaped. And there were problems. And they never launched the drug. And so she sued them and got the drug back and kept the billion dollars, which is why I asked the like it blew my mind the story. But I'm I'm wondering how you got comfortable that they were going to fulfill on the earnout so that the, the earnout piece was was realistic for you. Yeah. Um, you know, it comes down to any deal, there's there's inherent trust at some point. And uh 
yeah, you never know for sure. And at the end of the day, once you get far enough along, we're, we're much more, I guess, beholden to them than the other way around. And so at some point you're in too deep and that's part of just looking people in the eye and believing in the good in people and hoping that they, that they honor their deal. But it's just a feeling. And I think we're pretty, pretty optimistic, but also pretty good judges of people. And so, um, that's what we, we end up taking a leap of faith, but you're certainly right that it is always a uh, leap of faith. Was there, are you still in the earnout phase right now? Like, how's it going? Um, it's going well for the most part. Uh, yeah, it, it actually ends. Uh, well, no, we have a little, little more tail on it. It was always backloaded, so it will really depend what happens in the next uh, you know, year here. But uh, it's tracking within reason about, about as we expected it would. Got it. Got it. You, you've been involved in a lot of deals. You, you've had a lot of exits. You, you've been now investing in a lot of companies. And I'd imagine you've seen a lot and in, in your time at Goldman Sachs, you've seen a lot of dirty tricks. And I, you know, I'm fascinated by this because because I think there's this uh, there's this legion of mercenary buyers who are basically preying on business owners and their relative naivete. And, and, and taking advantage of that and, and getting businesses for less than they're worth and, and, and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. So give us a little glimpse into this world. What, what is the dirtiest trick you've ever seen a buyer try to you know, put one over on a business owner? And how do we avoid those, those, sorts, of, um, those sorts of tricks? Sure. Um, yeah, I think the two that I, that I see very often are what I refer to, which is that Sometimes people give you a headline number that you say, oh, it's X, and that looks really attractive. But when you actually unpack it um, and go through all the other um, bells and whistles on it, it's a much lower number. And so I think you have to really, the devil's in the details, especially when you're dealing with a big company who has much bigger lawyers than you do and much fancier XYZ and can spend against it. So I think it's it's that. And, and again, people know how deals work. If they're able to just kind of, have some of the flies drop, then they're in a, the capward seat to get it for much cheaper. And I think it's you know, unethical and really sad for entrepreneurs because a lot of times they're stuck. And you know, the other thing that kind of goes hand in hand with it that I see is that you know, financial engineering and, and then the way you legally write that up has become so tricky that I, I personally see a lot of deals where I say, this isn't a great deal for the entrepreneur, but I just don't think they get it because there's, you know, there's articles written about people have sold their company for a billion dollars and walked away with like $10 million because they didn't really understand how preferences worked and getting crammed down and dilution and ratchets and liquidation preferences. So without doing a, a sermon and all those, there is many companies we invest in now where I do it because I go, I, I like this a lot, but my downside protection is so, so great that um, there's no reason not to do it because it's a free option. Conversely, in some of those, I walk away because I feel bad for the entrepreneur because there's actually no way that they can make uh, money anymore. I, I love the definitions. Can, can you define, um, I've never heard crammed down before. What do you mean by that? Yeah, crammed down is when you, uh, is when you get, I meant crammed down in the cap table, meaning the ownership table of your company. And I think uh, what ends up happening is people don't understand, uh, they understand taking money, but they don't understand always dilution and they don't understand how preferences work. And so when you have a company that has a lot of preferred stock in there and that has to come out before all the common, and then you, you it's not as simple as, oh, I own 5% of a billion dollar company. It's I own 5% 
of a billion dollar company after all the press, after ratchets and other things. And so that number ends up dwindling quite a bit. What's a ratchet? Uh, <laughs> those are harder to explain, but I would say that, that in general, it's just, it's just different options that investors have. Uh, and there's different ways to do it where they just, again, continue to get their money back or out before um, anyone else gets anything. Yeah, this uh, it's a it's a fancy world if you get into some of these uh, deals that are offered by VCs where they sound good on the headline number, but there are a lot of uh, T's and C's to cross so, or, or yeah. review. So I appreciate the uh, the, no the education on some of the uh, the, the terms. Um, you guys have written a book. Tell me about the book. Yeah, we've written a book called um, Shortcut Your Startup, which um, to what you were saying earlier, I think hopefully people understand the, the intent of it, which is that, as I said, time is the new money. And I think we've written a book just based on our experience saying we're hopefully just, just old enough and thus just wise enough and have enough experience to, to talk about some of this, yet young enough to get it and understand how companies are built in the new world order here. And so it's a book about a bunch of different, uh, we call them startup switch-ups or things that are counterintuitive to the way business has always been done, but we think hold to the changing way that businesses and companies are built. And so it's uh, a book about that. And it's uh, you know definitely a lot of new information that we think we've, we've developed or seen over the pattern recognition, but it's also a good bit of information that we've learned from other people or that we didn't, I guess, invent or put out there. But part of the what happens to, I think, entrepreneurs today is there's, there's no lack of information out there, but there's definitely a lack of sorting through the information, synthesizing it, and distilling it in a way that's very easy and usable. So that's what we've tried to do here is take new information and existing stuff, put it into what we call a playbook, which is, in essence, what we do at my company, M13, and give you a pretty user-friendly manual of how to start uh, a company in, in today's day and age. Awesome. What's the best way for people to reach out to if they want to say hi? Yeah, absolutely. There's a, uh, there's a contact on our book website called shortcutyourstartup.com. You can just find a link to get in touch with us there. Otherwise, um, our company is called M13. And if, if anyone sends an email to info at m13.co, that's .co, not .com, uh, it'll get to one of us. And we, we always like new people reaching out. Shortcutyourstartup.com. Cordy Reeve, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. -L -L Thanks for listening.